As one who took carol singers round for 30 years round this parish, I warned George that the hospitality of people is so great, you'll never get around if you get invited. Just, uh, I used to ask them to, uh, they, to, if they didn't want me to call at the house, they let us know, and as long as they paid a, a big sum, we wouldn't sing at their house, but that was the way of doing it. Did you notice uh, some weeks ago, when the, or some days ago, when the Pope visited Turkey, as he got off the plane, he was met by a placard carrying Muslims with a very clear statement. He is not the Son of God, he is only a prophet. Well, I disagree with them profoundly. I think they were wrong, but I admire their courage, and at least they knew what they were doing. Uh, contrast that with the uh, uh, attitude of our own society over recent weeks and months, uh, you know, politically correct, getting out, getting the Christian message out of the way. And have you been excited or a bit bothered by the backlash? The backlash is very interesting. We want to keep the Christian culture. We want to keep these sort of reminders of the Christian faith. But is there a real danger that we're sort of trying to have something that's not too offensive? So we're all told we've got to be British. Now, I'm not quite sure what British is, but I think one of the things about Britishness is that you've not got to be fervent about religion. You certainly don't carry placards at airports if you're British. You may be fervent about the ashes, for better or for worse. You may be fervent about Sheffield Wednesday. You haven't lost one, lost one game in ten, and you'll be happy to be fervent about that. But you must not be fervent about religion. Uh, a man I remember in my days of visiting around the parish who assured me that he, was a, he didn't come to church at all, but he was very glad it was here because he wanted the church to be there for his children to be baptised and his children to get married. And because I like being reasonably blunt, I did point out that if everybody was like him, there'd be no church there for anybody to get married in. Uh, and you see, that's the Britishness. We like the idea of the church, but we mustn't become too serious. Now, let's be quite clear. If these Muslim protesters are right, we are wrong, and what we're doing at Christmas is a charade. But because I believe they're profoundly wrong, and that we are right, I want you to get fervent about the message. That's why I'm happy that uh, Paul's given this opportunity of doing a little series of three in the morning and one in the evening on the last day of the year to look at how we prepare for Jesus. And we prepare for Jesus because we believe him to be Son of God and we believe this event was unique and one day it will be climaxed in his return. Oh, do remember, Advent is not just the countdown to Christmas. Advent calendars are okay but they end on December the 25th. Uh, Advent candles are okay, if you like them, but they again sort of end. It is uh, the second coming, the one day that he comes in glory, that in a sense we're anticipating. But it's because he came first, Son of God, into our world that we can anticipate. And so my little series will close on that Sunday evening of the end of the year with, Come, Lord Jesus, we long for your return. But a little series in Isaiah, which I'm uh, privileged to do, I did remember when I started preparing that I wrote a commentary on Isaiah a long time ago. So I fished it out and to see what I'd said. And I pointed out then, and I believe it still, that Isaiah was a royal prophet and he was an evangelical prophet. He was a royal prophet in that he had the ears of kings. Would that we had godly men like Isaiah who could speak to the rulers of our day. What a difference that would make. And you, you, in the story of Isaiah, he's often by the side of kings. 
It all started in chapter 6 in the year that King Uzziah died. I always feel sorry for Uzziah. Most people, the only thing they know is that he died. It's not a poor chap. But he, he did also live before he died. And he was uh, Isaiah's great hero. He was the great king who did a lot for Judah. And, uh, but he finished very sadly. And Isaiah lost his hero, but found his Lord in a very special way. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. But later on, he would have the ear of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah would, be, would run to Isaiah when trouble was in Jerusalem. Uh, but if you turn back to page 691 of your Bibles, you're not there already, that's what we're on. Isaiah chapter 7. And in, uh, there he was having trouble with the king of the day, Ahaz, who was not at all willing to listen, who would cloak his unwillingness in piety in verse 12. I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Come on, Ahaz. You're simply saying you're not prepared to take the risk of faith and you couch it in pious language. He was having problems. But Isaiah was not only a royal prophet because he spoke to kings. He was a royal prophet because he spoke about the king, the one who would come. And in a very real sense, you can only understand Isaiah if you think of him anticipating the first coming and the second coming. All the glory of the bursting of Jesus into the world is anticipated 700 and odd years before in the prophecy of Isaiah. And we shall see as we take the little series through. Here is the promise of one who would come. By chapter 9, our next week's theme, he's come with all his great titles. And then on Christmas Eve we shall look at uh, the king and the man reflecting on the kind of unique relationship of king and man in Jesus. But in this particular passage, we face what's a classic illustration of what theologians call hermeneutics. Nice word. And the hermeneutic is a, you take the horizon of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, you take the horizon of the world in which you, we live and you bring them together without despite to what the Bible says in its day and make it relevant to our day. Uh, the great exponent, the world exponent of hermeneutic, used to sit in the pew there listening to my sermon. Professor Anthony Thistleton is the man. He wrote the famous book, The Two Horizons, uh, on that theme. It always used to worry me because he'd be sitting in the pew. I dare not go to his lecture where he would say, I was listening to a sermon last week. I was frightened to death what might come out. But Tony was a, a very godly man and a very gracious man. But he knew all about hermeneutic. Now, why is this a classic? Well, it's this, you see. Isaiah is talking to Ahaz about a sign in verse 14. A virgin with child and give birth to a son and we'll get, call him Emmanuel. And then, things are going to happen in his lifetime. Before he gets old enough to be able to choose the right and the wrong, something will happen. Now, what's that got to do with Jesus 700 years later? How could Ahaz have begun to understand it of, of Jesus? Well, in a sense, he couldn't. But there was a message to Ahaz in his day, a very significant message, which was going to make sense to him, but would only make full sense when you come on to the story of Jesus. We can understand as Ahaz could never have understood. Now, please, it's important to notice this. In verse 14, the word for virgin in the Hebrew does not necessarily mean a virgin technically. It is a word which means a young woman of marriageable age who might or might not be a virgin. And therefore you can translate it quite happily. 
about this virgin being someone. Some have suggested he was speaking about his own child. Chapter 8, he has a child, uh, his wife has a child, and gives that lovely name in verse 1, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. I love that name. It it rolls off the tongue. I wonder what they called him for short. I often thought Baz, probably. Uh, But you see, it may well have been that this is a child he's looking forward to. And that will be an ordinary, not a virgin. But you see, once you get to the New Testament, there is no doubt at all that Mary was a virgin. We shall be looking at Luke chapter 1 next week. The message, how shall it be? I'm a virgin. Oh, you'll be a child. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Most High will overshadow you. The child will be called Son of God. He will be God. You see, they knew about it in Palestine. John 8, 41, the crowds taunt Jesus. We were not born of fornication. You get the message. That's what we think you were. But you see, we know better. So there is a very real sense in which this prophecy in the hermeneutic, you see, the horizons meet. For Ahaz, it was a sign. We'll see what that means in a moment. But it becomes for us an even greater sign. And if, and you'd be right, you think about Ahaz that he was rather poor, that he wouldn't respond, well, he'd less to go on than we have. And I still meet people who want to claim to be Christian and not believe the virgin birth. Who say the creed with their tongue in their cheek and who make, make allegiance to it but deny the reality of Christ being truly son of God. You may not do so and call yourself a Christian. You will actually deny the very basic of the Christian faith. The cross can be meaningless. The resurrection will be meaningless. The return will not happen. But you see, if he is the son of God, What a difference that makes. And it's to that we must return in a few moments. But let's look first of all at the the, the first horizon, the way of faith frustrated. Here is what it was for Isaiah in his day, uh, somewhere about 734 BC. What did it mean then? Well, the way of politics over against the word of prophecy. It's right that godly people should be involved in politics. It was great that Isaiah cared about this foolish alliance that Ahaz was making with Assyria in order to save himself against two rather useless enemies. And the northern kingdom and Syria had allied together. You've read the story. And he was frightened to death of them. So in order to get security, he makes an alliance with the big boy, with Assyria. One day these two enemies he worried about will have gone and Assyria, his friend, would be his enemy. Isaiah saw it. You see, the person of faith sees further. There used to be a phrase, didn't there? The phrase went something like this about people, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly use. Well, I think that's profoundly wrong. It's the heavenly minded who actually are of much more earthly use. Because they see things from a proper perspective. Isaiah understood what was going on. Poor old Ahaz was in the middle of it all and couldn't see it. And Isaiah tried to pull him out. And do you see the key bit is in verse 9b. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. It is a play on on, on words in Hebrew. And you better translate it. Here's a paraphrase. Hold God in doubt you'll not hold out. If you don't believe, you won't survive. 
And it's into that situation, the way of politics, which was the way to try to find an answer without reference to God, without any principle. The world in which we live is so similar. Alongside the way of politics, there's the word of prophecy. What is Isaiah trying to do? He's trying to bring stability. He tells Ahaz in verse 4 to keep calm and don't be afraid, which is exactly the opposite in verse 3, verse 2. Ahaz was shaken like the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. I always keep notes of where I preach what I preach because it's important when you're travelling around like I do these days. And I noted from my notes that I preached on this passage from this pulpit uh, on the very week after Princess Diana was killed about a month before I retired. And I remember it well and I checked on my notes because there was that strange sense that, you remember it? Uh, it was an awful event. And <laughs> it's still simmering on, good gracious me. Uh, and all the panic, all the strange outpouring. It wasn't just of love, it was a, it's a sign of a whole panic. The whole foundations were being shaken. We've had many more since then. We've had 9-11. I am British, so it's set. September the 11th to me. I will not give in to these 9-11s. September 11th, we've had all that. And we've had all the terrorism in our own country. And we now have uh, polonium, whatever it is. Uh, uh, spies and, and, and all the, the mystery that's going on. And of course, inevitably, there is, if you stop and think, the kind of panic. Now, what does Isaiah say? doesn't just say be calm, he says believe. And if only you believe, it'll be okay. And ask for a sign. Oh no, Ahaz wasn't going to ask for a sign. He decided on the way of politics. He decided on the wisdom of the world. And so Isaiah says, alright, I'll give you a sign. The Lord will give you a sign, verse 14. And the sign is that before this child about to be born, with this wonderful name... Before this child is old enough to know the right from the wrong. I asked the 915 congregation with their loads and loads of parents with young children. I asked them to sort of to work out when their children know how to decide between right and wrong. The problem is not knowing how to decide between right and wrong. It's doing the right and not doing the wrong. That's a problem. But okay, before this child is able to make moral judgments, something's going to happen. What is going to happen? Well, uh, there'll be an invasion by the enemy, verse 17. And you'll be eating curds and honey, yogurts and honey, if you want to be more precise. Uh, you'll be having the basic food. It's a, the food of a starvation. It's not a beautiful meal. Because, you see, you've chosen the way of politics, and this is my word, what will happen. I'll give you a sign. Now, please notice, it's a very important spiritual principle this morning, I'm trusting you at 11 o'clock to be thoughtful people. Here you are. It's, it's a very intriguing moment. The sign that Isaiah gives to Ahaz would only happen in a few years' time. Almost certainly the year 732 BC. And the sign wasn't something that would happen now to help you to make the decision. Because you've decided to go away of politics, when it happens, you'll remember. It's exactly the same thing as God giving a sign to Moses. People talk about signs. And most people, when they talk about signs, want the sign now. Here's Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And Moses, not too sure whether he can lead his people out. He'd lost his confidence. And God says, I'll give you a sign, Moses. 
when you brought the people out of Egypt, you'll worship me at this mountain. And if I had been Moses, I'd have said, hey, wait a minute, I want the sign now. That's not going to help me. What you're asking me to do is to act in faith, and if I act in faith and go ahead trusting you, that one day I'll stand here and, and worship you? Yes. And he did. A little reluctantly, he stepped out in faith, and it happened. Now, please, this is the Christian life. We're asked this Christmas time just to renew our faith that God came into the world in the person of Jesus. Oh, it's a step of faith, of course it is. Have you realised what a step of faith it was for Mary when God said, the child you're going to have is my child? Can you imagine how she could tell her people, her friends, whose child is it? God's. Can you imagine the comment she gets from her friends? That was an act of faith. And the faith of uh, Joseph in the passage we read in Matthew chapter 1 with that remarkable statement, all this was to, that it might be fulfilled which the Lord spoke through the prophet mentioned 12 times in Matthew's Gospel, that praise, that Joseph had the faith to believe that the child his engaged friend Mary was carrying was God's child. That was faith. And God blessed because they acted in faith. Mary and Joseph. Mary bore the child and Joseph remained true to her in faith. So the challenge to Christians is that we're challenged to believe these great truths without which there is no gospel, to step out in faith in these truths and to match the hour with our fervency of spirit. Just note again before we move on to the other horizon. Just notice that uh, this would only happen a year or two's time when uh, this child, whatever the name of the child was, when the child grew up but was able to understand, to come to years of discretion. And God is saying to Ahaz, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. And do you see what happened was rejection. Invasion. It all went, what's that awful phrase? Pear-shaped for Ahaz. And yet, and yet, there still was this word, a virgin, and Emmanuel. Whatever child was born didn't seem to have that name. And she wasn't a virgin. And yet, it's still there. And come the day, 700 years later, when the angel could say to Joseph, this is going to happen, it's a fulfilment of a prophecy that Isaiah made so long ago, the Lord speaking through the prophet. We read in Matthew 1, that's the horizon, the word of faith fulfilled. So think with me for the rest of the sermon about the three truths of Emmanuel. There's first the miracle of Emmanuel. It is a real thing. It is God coming into the world in the person of Jesus. Emmanuel's not just a, some name. It means something. Do you see it comes again in chapter 8, verse 8? Assyria will come in and the king of Assyria will go through the land. Oh, Emmanuel. Oh, God is with us. He never will win. And again in verse 10. Devise your strategy, it will not it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand for Emmanuel, God 
is with us. Unless you missed it, what is the end of Matthew's Gospel? We, we read the beginning. How does Matthew's Gospel, which begins with a promise of Emmanuel, how does it end? Jesus saying to a group of disciples, Go make disciples of all na- nations, and lo, I am with you always. Emmanuel, the miracle. You see, the enemy will do his best, but he will always fall short. I mentioned at 9.15, you know that famous number in the book of the Revelation, 666. Six, six. I had a friend who had a car with 666. Six, six. He had to sell it straight away. He couldn't possibly drive a car with 666. Six, six. It's the mark of the beast. It's the mark of the enemy. Why 666? Six, six, six? If you go to commentaries, you'll find 135 or 235 suggestions. I will give you the definitive one now. You're right. Six, six, six is one short of seven, seven, seven. And seven is always the name, the number of God. It's the number of perfection. Seven is it. And the enemy, he always falls short. He's six, six, six. He never wins. Here Jesus says in John chapter 12, Now is the judgment of this world, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And the defeat of the enemy began when God came into the world in the person of Jesus, Son of God, God, man. Now, why does it matter that he is the Son of God? Why did Jesus say to the disciples at the crucial point in the Gospels, Who do people say that I am? And when he got some suggestions, the big question, Who do you say I am? Does it matter? Of course it matters, because you see, soon he's going to tell them about the cross. And until you know who he is, the cross cannot be meaningful. So it matters. Oh, I still meet people who I'm trying to convince them of the gospel will say to me something like this, pious like Ahaz, oh, I believe he was a marvellous teacher. I believe he was a good man, the best man that ever lived, but I don't believe he's the son of God. And I say to them, but you're not being honest, are you? You really cannot believe that. For if he's a great teacher and he got it wrong on the most important thing and he was always claiming to be God, the rest, you can't believe him. If he's wrong on the most important, why trust him? And if he actually was conning us because he knew he wasn't the son of God, he's certainly not a good man. But I know why people hide behind that. You see, if he's not the son of God, I can disagree when I don't like So when he talks about the judgment of hell, and I don't like that thought, I can say, Jesus, you're wrong. But if he's the son of God, he's never wrong, is he? So we are left with this from the miracle of Emmanuel, that God came in the person of Jesus. He was both God and man. And the virgin birth is the supreme illustration. Human, the mother Mary, but divine of God. That's the beginning of our salvation. But there's also the message of Emmanuel. That's the miracle of Emmanuel. The message of Emmanuel. God is with us. In Scripture, that's always a great note. You get it when the spies go into the promised land. And, well, at least the minority said, look, yes, the enemy is great. It's going to be difficult, but God is with us. 2 Chronicles chapter 13, when they were going to battle, the king said, look, the enemy is strong, but be courageous. God is with us. Psalm 46. I wonder if you remember this. 
Do you remember the Falklands War? It seems a long time off now. Uh, when the Falklands War broke out, the day it broke out, or the day after it broke out, Marit and I were meant to be going to the Cayman Islands, not for a holiday. I was going to preach in the Cayman Islands. And I remember Gavin McGrath, my colleague at the time, coming to me very formally and very solemnly and saying he thought, Rick Carey was going to do it, he thought I ought not, we ought not to go to the Cayman Islands. It was a time when there's a great unrest in our nation. We think the leader ought to still be in the parish. You ought to be here. So we uh, postponed our trip to the Cayman Islands. I remember ringing the British Airways and they said, well, sir, we can get you out to the Cayman Islands. We're not, we can't guarantee to bring you back. Now, there was some thought that not to be brought back from the Cayman Islands might be a rather nice thought that we might get there and never come back. But uh, taking Gavin's word, we, we stayed. And I remember we called a special prayer meeting. Now, normally, we could pick the people across there in the lounge for a prayer meeting, but this was a special one. And it was about this size of a congregation, as I remember it. And we gathered one Wednesday night to pray. Because somehow, although it seems sort of so tame compared with Iraq, doesn't it? Nonetheless, at the time, it was the first kind of war like that since the Second World War. Uh, for us, I mean. And I remember I preached from Isaiah from Psalm 46, where it talks about the earth quaking and the seas roaring. But the Lord of hosts is with us. The assurance, the message of God with us. What a difference that makes. But you see, there's a third. There's the ministry of Emmanuel. Does it mean that God is with us in the person of Jesus? Oh, when he came on earth, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, said Jesus. If you want to know what God's like, look at me. If you want to know what God's like, listen to me. I'm sure you've thought this through. If you'd bumped into Jesus walking on the streets of Jerusalem in his day, you wouldn't have said, ah, God. I doubt it. I don't have any halo around him. Any sort of translucent picture, only on the Transfiguration Mount. But if you'd listened to him preaching and seen him living, you might very well quickly have said, God is with us. The Bible actually challenges us not to say Jesus was like God, but God is like Jesus, and it isn't quite the same. That is, in him we see all of God that we need to know. But you see, we don't see him anymore. He's died and risen and ascended. He's gone from this planet for the time being. But the ministry of Emmanuel was supremely that he would die on a cross, the one who was born of a virgin, the God-man on the cross. He had to be both to deal with our sins. Just recently I've been reading a little uh, article. I try to keep my theological brain working a bit in retirement and I read these theological journals occasionally. And I was reading an article where someone was uh, trying to offset the kind of feeling there is now that the great Christian doctrine of substitutionary atonement, that is, that Christ on the cross bore our sins, that he was treated by, by God as if he were a sinner, that the wrath of God was satisfied in him. The argument, and it's being propounded by evangelicals, sadly, is, well, it, that's terribly subjective. It's just to do with me and my salvation. It's got nothing to do with the big issues of the world and the problems of society. And this article was wanting to disprove that. And it, I believe it's right. That actually, without this doctrine of Christ dying on the cross for our sins, we have nothing to offer society. We're not here as a tame sort of adjunct 
of the world concerned about global warming. There's something far more important about what we stand for. Let me give an illustration. We're all getting excited, well, not all, but the media is, about the end of the slave trade, and we, we were apologising for this, that, and the other. And uh, it's very intriguing, isn't it? Why did William Wilberforce, wealthy man from Hull, why did William Wilberforce go at it and at it and at it to end the slave trade? Well, the word on the street, of course, is that he had a great Christian conscience. But wait a minute. Is that being British? Uh, William Wilberforce had many friends who would have gone to church regularly. Many friends who would certainly talk about their, their Christian culture, who would have known the Bible pretty well. They did in those days, and they were slave traders themselves. They saw nothing wrong in it. They just did it. Their Christian conscience didn't seem to bother them. What happened to Wilberforce? Well, he got converted. He heard great evangelical preachers of the evangelical awakening of that time. He listened to John Newton. He knew about the gospel. He knew about amazing grace. And his life was changed by what message? By a message of Christ who died on the cross for his sins. And once he had discovered the gospel that changed him, the conscience awakened. And he fought against the slave trade. And he had to fight. And of times it went to the House of Commons and he kept on battling because he was a converted man. And until and unless the heart of men is changed by the message which alone can change them, it will always fail. The way of politics will always win. You don't keep going like Wilberforce unless you've got that utter change within that gives you the impetus. His saviour died for him. So he gets ostracised ridiculed, taunted. So be it. Part of the price. I hope you see it. You see, that's what I long for. No, not that we carry placards necessarily. Maybe right sometimes. But that we are fervent about the truth of the gospel which underpins Christmas. Which alone will make Christmas. Oh, it's lovely. I love carol singing. I love all the side of Christmas. But that's not what we've got to get fervent about. It's the message. Emmanuel. God with us. And God with us becomes God for us at Easter and God in us at Pentecost. And there can be no God for us at Easter unless this is true. He is really God-man. And there can be no Pentecost experience of God in us unless we believe in God with us and God for us. It all hinges on this truth, you may not drop the virgin birth and the reality of the God-man and believe you can keep the gospel. And I trust as we go next week we shall see how light comes instead of darkness and the following week how hope comes out of despair and today it's faith instead of fear. What a challenge this Christmas. People's hearts shaken. But here's a truth that can bring hope. Let's not be like Ahaz. Let's dare to believe and have a fervent spirit in proclaiming it.